This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. I've said to a lot of my friends when I was preparing for this talk that this basically feels like Christmas to me, getting to stand here and talk about David Bowie and science fiction. Um, They are two of my biggest lifelong loves. Um, As Sean said, for the most part, both of these loves are things that have been uh, instilled in me and inspired by my dad, who's here in the audience. Um, From a very young age, uh, as Sean said, I felt like I had no choice. I was raised listening to Bowie records, uh, mostly from memory, it was mostly Ziggy Stardust, but then I started to, you know, uh, listen to a few other albums as well. And watching science fiction films, uh, mostly things like Alien and Predator, which I was probably a little bit too young to be watching, but um, I've grown to love them now. Um, I was also probably a little bit too, too young to fully understand or appreciate what was happening in Bowie's music when I was first listening to it. But again, I've now sort of come to love that and and understand it. So it's funny thinking back on that now, I realised that what I didn't understand at the time was that not only was I watching and reading science fiction, but I was also listening to science fiction. Um, And it's nice to kind of uh, uh, have that realisation as you get get older and and gain a deeper understanding of his work. For me, um, after becoming, you know, such a a big fan of of Bowie's work um, and a fan of of popular culture and science fiction, I decided to take that into my professional life and and into my career. So uh, again, as Sean said, I I pursued my PhD in um, popular culture studies, um, media studies or fan studies, those kind of related areas. Um, And I now work as a a cultural critic, um, as a blogger and a podcaster in the popular media space. And I talk about these kinds of geeky things um, at any opportunity that I get, uh, tonight being one of those examples. So, before I sort of really get my hands dirty sifting through Bowie's work, um, I want to talk a little bit about science fiction, obviously. Because we need to understand sort of what we're dealing with here and and why science fiction was so significant to Bowie um, and how really it was the perfect vehicle, I think, for him to express himself uh, during those most creative Um, decades of his career. I'll be focusing predominantly on Bowie's work during the 60s and 70s, um, so his glam rock period. And when we think about all the phases of Bowie's career, um, for him, this was sort of just one phase of all of the many things he did. Um, But to the rest of us, that glam rock period for Bowie was really a reinvention of the music scene and a critical segue from traditional rock to the 80s punk movement. So let's start by getting into sci-fi and thinking about some of the ways that we can see that starting to emerge in Bowie's work. So, as Bowie says, I like seeing people pretending. I have a great imagination and I like to let my imagination run wild. I think it would be an understatement to say that Bowie has a a vivid imagination and a penchant for speculative storytelling. And it's here that we can see that first parallel between Bowie and, and what Bowie did and what science fiction aims to do. So genres such as science fiction and fantasy have been defined as a kind of thought experiment. So in some ways, these genres are almost academic. Um, They can be characterized by the phrase, what if, um, which metaphorically can be thought of as like a hypothesis or a research question. So for example, 
What if we lived in a post-apocalyptic Orwellian nightmare? What if we had five years to live? What if an alien messiah visited Earth with the promise of redemption? These kinds of probing questions allow us to gaze on near and distant future worlds, and often through a dystopian lens. They allow us to test out scenarios and carry them out to their logical conclusion, and then try and sort of write the futures that we'd like to see, so write out these utopias, or they can also serve as a warning of the dangers of contemporary society, which is typically what Bowie used them to do. So for example, just at a, at a sort of, you know, a surface look, Ziggy taught us that there are risks associated with fame, that worshipping false idols isn't as effective as facing your problems head on, and that society is doomed if we don't empower the youth to carry us forward. The ability to future gaze like this means that science fiction allows us to think about and talk about potential problems in the world, like food shortage, natural disasters, or the perils of space travel. But science fiction can be so far-fetched that it becomes this powerful vehicle for commentary because it uses these outrageous ideas to discuss contemporary issues by way of metaphor. So let me explain what I mean. I'll use Star Trek as an example. I know there's at least one Star Trek fan in the audience. Yes. Um, so Star Trek is premised on the idea of the prime directive. And this is just a principle that prohibits Starfleet personnel from interfering with the development of other civilizations. So basically, be tolerant of other cultures and let other cultures um, evolve the way that they will. So the entire series is really a metaphor for race relations, multiculturalism, and foreign policy. What we find looking at Bowie's work is that he uses science fiction in much the same way, as a metaphor for concerns that he had about the world at the time, whether this was drug abuse, alienation, rebellion, or worshipping false idols. His characters, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Halloween Jack, and even the Thin White Duke, all communicate these ideas to an audience via elaborate stories and otherworldly ideas. But the messages are nearly always grounded in everyday life. Another aspect of science fiction that links to Bowie's work is the reoccurring tropes that define the genre, or in other words, just common themes that we see popping up consistently in sci-fi literature and movies. Many of these tropes are also consistently present in a lot of Bowie's work, so we can use this as another indicator for how um, Bowie was so influenced by this genre. The key tropes that I find most prevalent in, in Bowie's work from sci-fi are the alien, dystopian futures, and future nostalgia. And I'll have a look at each of these in turn. Okay. So, arguably, Bowie's foray into science fiction uh, and rock and sorry, into science fiction rock and roll began in 1969 with the release of Space Oddity, a melancholy anthem for the space age, which preceded the Apollo landing by around 11 days, I think. This track couldn't have been a more perfect precursor for Bowie's ongoing romance with the sci-fi genre. It contains so many narrative elements common to science fiction, including space travel, near-future setting, technology, and alienation. Furthermore, space, uh, space Oddity married perfectly with the cultural climate of the 60s. It reflected both the wonder and the fear which characterized popular sentiment around the impending Apollo mission and the brave new world that was being ushered in by space travel. There are also vague references to sci-fi themes in We Are the Hungry Men from his debut album, David Bowie, uh, in 1967, which tells of a, ravid, uh, a world ravaged by famine, overpopulation, and cannibalistic predators. However, Space Oddity was really what put him on the map and is what people often think of when they think Bowie and science fiction. 
So Space Oddity tells the tale of an astronaut named Major Tom, who is marooned in space and essentially left to die. He went on to become the central figure in a cautionary tale which concluded in Ashes to Ashes of his Scary Monsters album. In fact, Bowie once referred to Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes as bookends. And indeed, they do seem to signal the beginning and the end of Bowie's uh, musical brand of performative sci-fi. Tom was also referred to briefly in Hello Space Boy from Outside, although it's more likely that this was just an intertextual reference um, than a tie into a larger narrative. So while Spaced Oddity revealed an inclination for theatrical storytelling, it leaned more towards straight commentary, but it still exists as a precursor for what was to follow with Ziggy Stardust. In fact, this transition from Space Boy to Rock God Alien is perfectly reflected in the two clips that were released for the track. The first shows Bowie in character, perhaps as Major Tom. Okay, so this video, uh, the commercial release for Space Oddity, is perhaps one of the most poignant and pivotal pieces of media in Bowie's career in regards to his headlong descent into performative sci-fi glam rock, um, because it sort of perfectly signals that shift when you see it compared to the video before. But why did he choose this for himself? Why the specific and unique pairing of science fiction and rock and roll? Firstly, there's a natural unity between music and science fiction. As Ken McCloyd put it, music is heavily involved in both the creation and the literal colonization of space. So in other words, music is otherworldly. When we listen to it, we can feel like we've been transported somewhere else, to another realm. We can become so immersed in music in a way that other mediums, like television, film, or even literature, just can't really do to the same extent. Science fiction, of course, aims to do the same by literally transporting us, in mind anyway, to other worlds. So maybe we shouldn't be asking why Bowie uses music as a vehicle for science fiction, but why not? And why hasn't anyone attempted to do this to the same extent since? Music is also a powerful mechanism for immersive storytelling. Not only can music convey plot, character and settings, but music creates tone. It allows us to sink into a world, an idea or a story. Bowie knew this all too well and he exploited it with great success on a number of occasions. The instrumentation in Space Oddity, for example, which we've just heard a little bit of, with its fractured tempo, ethereal string section and electronic sounds, combined to create a disorienting experience, perhaps as a musical analogue for the defamiliarising experience of space. Another, uh, another reason for Bowie's attraction to science fiction could be that it represents a middle ground between the equally unappealing paradigms of scientific essentialism and religious fervor or as Bowie eloquently puts it, bullshit faith. Throughout the course of Bowie's expansive career, his take on religion, spirituality, and philosophy has been hard to pin down. Like his ever-changing uh, stage persona, he courts every worldview accessible to him, seemingly in an effort to somehow anchor himself to the world, much in the same way that the main character from Stranger in a Strange Land, the novel upon which the Ziggy myth is loosely based, samples earthly religions and philosophies in an effort to acquaint himself with our customs. Furthermore, many of Bowie's aliens are also godlike. Several of his songs refer to the ethereal nature of the characters he's created, from a leper messiah to homo superior to supermen. This most likely reflects his need to marry religious sentiment with a fictional world of his creation, another staple of science fiction. As Bowie says of his take on the excessive late 60s and 70s, 
I was young, fancy free, and Tibetan Buddhism appealed to me at the time. I thought, there's salvation. It didn't really work. Then I went to Nietzsche, Satanism, Christianity, pottery, and ended up singing. It's been a long road. So the search for meaning in religious philosophies never really worked for Bowie, except as a means for creative inspiration. On the other hand, we have scientific essentialism, which is basically just a commitment to a scientific worldview at the expense of any other perspective. And this can be seen as kind of hard, grim, militaristic and oppressive, especially in the seven, uh, 70s when the Western world was single-mindedly focused on the colonization of space. One of the reoccurring tropes of rock is that it resists and subverts reductive worldviews. So naturally, Bowie's take on space travel was expansive, flamboyant, and subversive. And importantly, inclusive. We could all be Major Tom, or we could be, all be one of Ziggy's followers. If we look at some of the themes in the Ziggy narrative, we can see how Bowie used science fiction to marry these two worlds, whilst at the same time resisting elements that he found restrictive in both. Essentially, the Ziggy myth allowed him to stretch popular sentiment around space travel into something as grandiose as a rock and roll alien messiah, whilst at the same time using the fictional narrative to replace the failed religious philosophies that he dabbled with and turn it into something of his own creation, a charismatic star man with promises of salvation, redemption and rock and roll rebellion during humanity's darkest hours. So at this point, we're starting to piece together the why of Bowie and science fiction. So let's get into a little bit more of the meat of the what. Here we see Bowie talking about the original concept and ideas underpinning his now infamous 1972 concept album, Ziggy Stardust. The album was heavily influenced by the classic Robert Heinlein sci-fi novel, Stranger in a Strange Land, which was originally published in 1961. The novel is set in a distant future world following World War III and tells the story of a human Martian who is brought to Earth in an effort to understand the ways of human culture. The Ziggy myth is introduced in the first track off the album, Five Years. As Bowie explains, the time is five years to go before the end of Earth. It has been announced that the world will end because of lack of natural resources, and thus begins the story. Whilst the Ziggy album was certainly not the first concept album, Bowie is noted for his groundbreaking use of music, performance and character work to transfer, transform rock and roll into a powerful format for storytelling. What he did was more than simply create a thematic through line in his music or just tell story with lyrics. What Bowie created was pure rock and roll pageantry. And I want to show you just one example of the, the kind of elaborate show that Bowie liked to put on. I have to remember every now and again, I'm not just here to listen to Bowie music. I can just let it play. Okay, so um, unlike the Beatles, who preceded Ziggy with the Sgt. Pepper's album, an admittedly groundbreaking concept album, Bowie explored storytelling through the art of becoming rather than just creating. This is hardly surprising given his background in the performing arts. However, his commitment to character work as a rock star was, was unprecedented and has eclipsed many attempts since, simply because he regarded musical performance as a platform comparable to film or literature, so one where the, audio, uh, sorry, the author disappears in service to the story. As Bowie himself has noted in several interviews, his fans eventually stopped asking for Bowie. They stopped coming to see Bowie. They were coming to see Ziggy more than to see David Bowie. They were the young dudes and the pretty things that he referred to in his music. His work was a sci-fi saga, and not only did he play a role, 
but so did the fans, his band and the stage. He created a world and he filled it with some of the most recognisable themes from science fiction to date. I think this is a pretty poignant quote. Um, I always had a repulsive need to be something more than human. I felt very puny as a human. I thought, fuck that, I want to be superhuman. So when looking at how Bowie constructed science fiction through his art, there are several reoccurring themes that we can point to as being typical of the sci-fi genre. The first is the alien. Now the alien is extremely common in science fiction, partly because it reflects our fears and anxieties um, about space travel and about change. But also, I would argue predominantly because the alien represents the other, the most terrifying being of all. The other is simply the concept of being different. It's anyone or anything that is seen as different or alien to what we think of as normal identities. Psychoanalysts refer to the other as the non-assimilable alien monster. Of course, the other isn't always literally a monster. Society typically thinks of marginalised social groups as others, primarily because they're so different to what we think of as normal. What science fiction does is it takes this idea and uses the alien as a metaphor for the other in the world, like the Star Trek example from earlier. In that series, the aliens represent other cultures on Earth, and the conflict represents our inability to appreciate difference. Bowie, whether knowingly or not, performed perhaps one of the greatest metaphors for the other, Let's start by looking at how I constructed the idea of the alien through visual metaphors. <clears throat> when Bowie started transitioning into Ziggy, his outrageous costumes were unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. And so on stage, Bowie appeared as alien as the character that he described in his album. Bowie has described Ziggy across several different interviews, I kind of mashed these bits, descriptions together, as a British view on American street culture inspired by Japanese kabuki theatre and sci-fi rock aesthetics. So this kind of new way of, of performing rock was particularly effective for stirring up controversy at the time, given that the Western world was still coming out of the hippie movement and had only just begun to embrace the excesses of the 70s. Compared to the free-loving vibe that defined Woodstock only three years earlier, the theatrical camp quality of glam rock was truly outrageous and otherworldly. He was a cultural vanguard and an outsider. As songwriter Gary Kemp said of Bowie's infamous performance of Starman on top of the pops, I remember David Bowie doing Starman and just thought, wow, that was a life-changing moment. Audiences were awestruck, the media were baffled, and slowly the world started loving the alien. By the time Bowie released Aladdin Sane, his drug-fueled lifestyle inspired a somewhat more surreal evocation of the alien. As Angela Bowie noted, he wanted the shiny skin of the alien archetype. And we can clearly see this reflected in the image on the inner sleeve of the album. It's the image to the left. The creature before us is shiny, ethereal, sexless, and adorned with a vivid red and blue lightning bolt down its face. It's been suggested that the lightning bolt is a metaphor for mental illness because it represents a schism of the mind. I can't help but think that seems to have inspired this image of Zool from Ghostbusters also, but that might just be me. Bowie also cut a pretty otherworldly figure on the Diamond Dogs cover. I'll actually just pop back to that. In this case, the figures are more likely genetic mutations than little green men, but they still represent the idea of the alien in the sense that they are unidentifiable as anything human or animal known on Earth. 
From a cultural perspective, Bowie's Alien also played an important role in radicalising normative culture by presenting a metaphor for alienation. The impact of alienation on youth culture has been well documented and was particularly problematic in post-war Britain. For the most part, youth were labelled as deviant for their non-normative behaviour, and so a lot of the youth felt estranged from their immediate social environment. Because Bowie's alien is so unknowable, it's an other, it, it wasn't like anything else that people knew, it subverted the idea of what was normal, and it therefore opened up um, a space for the youth of the time to feel free to express themselves and to be accepted for who they are. Now, to a large extent, the aura of rebellion surrounding the rise and fall of Ziggy centred on Bowie's ambigu ambiguous sexuality and sexual preferences. Rumours of his bisexuality ran wild, fueled by Bowie's coy and knowing flirtation with the media on the subject. Moreover, his relationship with Mick Ronson on stage, which famously included performing guitar fellatio during sunsets, seemed to confirm what Bowie has asserted. I'll just give you a quick look of what I'm talking about. So these moments were acts of rebellion against normative sexuality and empowered a disenfranchised youth to resist normative ideologies. And they were acts that perhaps only an alien rock god could have gotten away with at the time. Bowie's queer appearance served to further cement his otherworldly persona during the time. As Mick Wall, editor of Classic Rock magazine, is quoted as saying, I remember the first time I saw Bowie, uh, Bowie appeared on TV in Ziggy Stardust, guys, and it was greeted mainly with contempt. Suddenly, here comes a guy dressed as a gay alien from outer space, singing gay alien songs from outer space. I was 14 and I genuinely didn't understand the concept of gay or straight. I remember Top of the Pops was family viewing, and I remember watching it with mum and dad. And there was this one bit in the chorus when Bowie puts his arm around Ronson's neck and they sing together. My dad was like poofter. I remember feeling it was very strange and very different to everything else that had gone on on Top of the Pops that week. My mother's intense disapproval made me think, well, there must be something great going on here. <laughs> and I mean, at that moment, I was totally hooked. As he famously sings in Rebel Rebel, a song for the disenfranchised masses, if ever, if ever there was one, you've got your mother in, the, in a well because she's not sure if you're a boy or a girl. Bowie's physical appearance, from decadent jewelry to skin-tight leotards to androgynous bodies and queer symbols, was an outright rejection of normative gender roles, and his music heralded the end of a bygone era and encouraged the youth to embrace their otherworldly qualities too. Perhaps one of the most poignant performances of his bisexuality, and therefore this idea of the alien other, is in the lyrics and film clip of the following song, which I'll just play a little bit of. The lyrics to John I'm Only Dancing, in particular the chorus, John I'm Only Dancing, She Turns Me On, suggest that Bowie is attempting to reassure a male lover that his flirtation with the unknown her is only physical. Furthermore, the anchor tattoo in the film clip for John I'm Only Dancing was particularly evocative for its connotations of gay culture in the Navy at the time. So this film clip is a nice example of how he uh, played with this idea of bisexuality to appear as the other. The second major sci-fi theme in Bowie's work is dystopian futures. This is typical of the time period in which Bowie created most of his sci-fi, a period known as new wave or social consciousness sci-fi. This period ran approximately from the early 60s to the late 70s, and it was a response to the perceived lack of social critique in science fiction from the golden era, so sort of the 30s to the 50s. Sci-fi in the 60s and the 70s was typically more experimental, 
and it focused on themes of sex, class, and race, all of which is evident in Bowie's work. Furthermore, sci-fi from this time period was typically darker due to growing concerns over political power, economic instability, and a loss of innocence coming out of the 60s. Hollywood also had somewhat of a doomsday fixation following, following and during the cultural shock of the Vietnam War. A lot of science fiction from this era served as a cautionary tale, often about the dangers of political power or technological determinism. One of the most striking examples of this in Bowie's work is Saviour Machine from The Man Who Sold the World. Saviour Machine tells the story of an artificial intelligence device created to solve all of humanity's greatest problems. As Bowie sings, they called it the prayer, its answer was law, its logic stopped war, gave them food. The twist in this tale is the machine's inevitable betrayal of humanity. In what can only be described as an existential crisis, the machine grows to resent and lament the banality of the utopia that it's created, and therefore it threatens to destroy the world. Cautionary tales about the uneasy relationship between man and machine still dominate sci-fi today, and we can see this in countless examples, including The Matrix, iRobot, Dark Star, and Blade Runner. Probably the most poignant example, I think, of dystopia in Bowie's work is his 1974 concept album, Diamond Dogs. This album is set in a post-apocalyptic world based loosely on George Orwell's 1984. So once again, ref reflecting Bowie's love of sci-fi sci literature. Very briefly, 1984 tells the story of a future world where citizens are ruled by the ideological stranglehold of the party, which is a hegemonic uh, political, gr political group who use thought police to literally control people's thoughts and make sure that they stay loyal to the party line. As I'm sure many of you already know, Bowie also hoped to adapt the novel into a stage play, but was unable to secure the rights. If you haven't seen the exhibition already, um, you can see lots of examples of his work feeding into the stage play that he was hoping to create. We never got that, but despite this, we still got the album. The main character in this story is Halloween Jack, although it's never made entirely sure whether Jack is a friend or a foe. The story is set in Hunger City, a post-apocalyptic, nightmarish rendering of Orwell's Oceana. But rather than have me describe it to you, let's just listen to Bowie's introduction to the world in Future Legend. So as you can hear from that introduction, and particularly the line about fleas the size of rats sucking on rats the size of cats, which I always found particularly evocative, Bowie created a truly nightmarish world. While Ziggy could technically be read as dystopian, um, given Ziggy's ultimate demise, the tone of Ziggy was actually positive. In fact, Bowie himself has described the Ziggy narrative as a story of hope. However, it seems that Bowie's entrance into the American market and his immersion into American culture during the mid-70s revealed a darkness in his work and indeed in Ziggy. It's crucial at this point to note the, importance, uh, the important role that Aladdin Sane played in Bowie's transformation from hopeful rock god messiah to mutant totalitarian dog. Aladdin Sane, otherwise known as Ziggy Goes to America, is, as I'm sure you all know, a playful re rendering of the phrase, a lad insane. And this speaks volumes to the purpose it served as paving the way for the Diamond Dogs narrative. Although technically a new character, Aladdin Sane was essentially about the corruption of Ziggy. He was liberated, cosmopolitan, but pessimistic, reflecting the attitudes of the 70s and the sexed up, drug-fueled environment of North America at the time. This was Ziggy, but harder, grittier, darker, and further down the rabbit hole. 
Whereas the Ziggy album championed rock and roll as a means for empowering the youth and critically disseminating news about the forthcoming apocalypse, this was actually what the song All the Young Dudes was about, um, the youth singing the news because there was no news media. The youth of Hunger City are actually asked to reject the ideological stranglehold of rock and roll and usurp the militant diamond dogs who stand in place for the party from Orwell's novel. Whilst the major theme from this album is still rebellion, it's undeniably dystopian, given that our lead character finds themselves made slave to the diamond dogs in the end, as depicted in the tracks 1984 and Big Brother. The line, they'll split your pretty cranium and fill it full of air from the track 1984 is particularly reminiscent of the torture scene at the end of Orwell's novel before the main character, Winston, is converted to the party's ideology. Something to touch on lightly at this point is Outside, Bowie's concept album from 1995. It's difficult to say whether or not this is strictly sci-fi, so I'm not gonna go into it into too much detail, but suffice to say, the notion that we live in a future world where crime is indistinguishable from art is decided, decidedly bleak. This is depicted beautifully in the film clip for The Heart's Filthy Lesson, which centers on themes of art, decay, bodily mutilation, and industrial aesthetics, which characterize a lot of Bowie's work in the 90s. This song in particular questions the limits of art and the pain we are willing to endure in its name. It's no surprise when you consider the parallels between the themes of art, crime, death, and the storyline to the movie Seven, that The Heart's Filthy Lesson was included on the soundtrack for the movie. Finally, I want to acknowledge a theme which is actually not of my choosing. It's of Bowie's choosing. And this is the idea of future nostalgia, something that Bowie maintains is a staple device of science fiction and is evident on virtually all of his albums. Future nostalgia is simply a past look at something that hasn't happened yet. So it's when we create stories about the near future and use them all, almost to reflect on issues in the present. So it's like we're thinking about something that's already happened because it feels so possible that it could. This is evident in all of Bowie's work that I've discussed so far in this talk. From Space Odyssey, which preceded the Apollo mission by only 11 days and evokes a strong sense of nostalgia for the time, to the aptly titled Future Legend, an oxymoron in many ways, but which speaks to this idea that Bowie had that we can use science fiction to almost predict the future. Even Outside, which was set in a future world where the lead character, a detective, investigates art crime, could be thought of as a nostalgic reflection on postmodern art. This is consistent with how Bowie uses sci-fi to reconcile religion and science. He was unlimited in what he could say, and he used the form as a way to create an image of what he thought the world might become. Um, and whilst this trope is, is predicated on the idea of nostalgia, which is positive, the images Bowie created were largely scary. So where are we now? It would seem that Bowie has all but abandoned the use of sci-fi in his work, but when we consider the ways in which he used sci-fi as a vehicle to express alienation, decay, destruction, and a loss of faith, perhaps this is a chapter of Bowie's expansive career best left closed. Perhaps the peace he's now seemingly found in his life, post-drugs, post-relationship woes, is finally being reflected in his music. Yet despite Bowie's retreat from space age oddities, his influence on science fiction and public sentiment around space travel is still deeply felt. From popular culture to public services, artists, musicians, and scientists alike look to Bowie's take on space travel to frame their own experiences. 
One of my favourite reworkings of Bowie's music is by New Zealand folk comedy duo Flight of the Concords. This clip that I'm about to show you, not all of it, but a little bit, is taken from an episode from the first series of their television show, wherein Brett receives life advice from Bowie in his dreams. Okay. <laughs> um, so, while we're used to seeing Bowie's work used and referenced in popular culture, there are so many different reworkings of, of his music that I could have chosen to show you. He also still manages to influence public rhetoric around space travel. This has been made evident very recently um, in the news and particularly in the following tongue-in-cheek article published in the Daily Mash, which is quite short, so I'm going to read it to you. It's called NASA to tackle more of David Bowie's questions. <laughs> Having discovered life-giving water on Mars, NASA scientists are hoping to address further questions posed by David Bowie. NASA chief Julian Cook said, I faxed David our findings last night. <laughs> He was satisfied that life on Mars is at least vaguely possible and we should now crack on with where were the spiders while the fly tried to break our balls and is it any wonder that I reject you first? <laughs> We've already sent a high-ranking military officer called Tom into orbit and asked if he can hear us. Plus, I told David the other week that I do occasionally wonder about sound and vision. But there's still a good 45 years of musical inquiries to tackle. So I've assigned each staff member a song and told them to get on with it. NASA engineer Joseph Turner said, mainly I've just been Googling where do spiders live. <laughs> Scientist Eleanor Shaw said, I'm supposed to do magic dance off Labyrinth soundtrack, but Bowie pretty much answers all the question in that one as he goes along. Under what babe I've put the babe with the power? Under what power I've put the power of voodoo? And under who do you do, do what? I've put remind me of the babe. <laughs> so this, was, this article was published just recently and I thought it was very cute. Um, but perhaps the most impressive reworking of Bowie's work, and one which I'm sure that you're probably all familiar with, is the one that took Bowie's first sci-fi story and fed it back to us as a real-life adventure. On that note, I'd like to end the talk on what is possibly one of the best covers of a Bowie song ever released, and in Bowie's own words, the most poignant version of the song ever created, and in space no less. Thank you very much for coming. I hope you've enjoyed the talk tonight. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.